Welcome to Broadway's Backbone with Brad Bradley, a podcast dedicated to the men and women of the ensemble, the chorus of dancers, singers, and actors that are the foundation of every Broadway musical. These often unsung gypsies are the hardest working people on the boards and are, well, Broadway's Backbone. Welcome to episode 65. My very special guest is Stephen Flaherty. Stephen Flaherty is the composer of the Broadway musicals Ragtime, Tony Award, Drama Desk Award, Outer Critics Circle Award, and two Grammy nominations. Once on this island, Tony nomination, London's Olivier Award for Best Musical, Susical, Grammy, Drama Desk nominations, Rocky, and currently Anastasia and the revival of Once on This Island. Additional Broadway credits include Cheetah Rivera, The Dancer's Life, The Original Songs, and Neil Simon's Proposal. He composed a score for four musicals at Lincoln Center Theater, The Glorious Ones, Dessa Rose, A Man of No Importance, and My Favorite Year. Other theater, In Your Arms, The Old Globe, Little Dancer, Kennedy Center, Lucky Stiff, Playwrights Horizon, and Loving Repeating, Chicago's Jefferson Award for Best New Musical. Films include Anastasia, two Academy Award and two Golden Globe Award nominations, After the Storm and Lucky Stiff. Mr. Flaherty's concert music has premiered at the Hollywood Bowl, Boston Symphony Hall, Carnegie Hall, and the Guggenheim. In 2014, he and longtime collaborator Lynn Ahrens received the Oscar Hammerstein Award for Lifetime Achievement, and in 2015, they are inducted into the Theater Hall of Fame. So I'm thrilled. I'm sitting here right now with Stephen Flaherty. And before we get into the questions, I just saw Once on This Island and it was unbelievable. It's still in previews. I woke up this morning singing and wanting to do We Dance and the dance break and that. I was that that's good. That, that's what we strive for. It's, it's great. We're having a wonderful time in Circle in the Square. It's the first time I've ever seen the show in the round. So it's really special. I've only seen it in Partial Thrust or Proscenium. So this is, it really brings the audience into the storytelling and that's the idea. So we're really trying to push those boundaries into, into the audience and break you know, the, the us and them kind of feeling of theater. Well, it completely worked. From the second I walked in, I, I, at first I could just see the lights that were hanging and I, was, I realized I was like, oh, this is gonna be an experience, not just a performance. And it really was. Oh, great. Wonderful. <laughs> yes. When you mentioned, you, do you see a lot of productions or regional productions when you, of your shows? Well, you know, I can't be some weird groupie following every single production around, but like uh, ones that I hear about and people say, oh, you should check this out. You know, obviously I, I go to try to see those. Uh, for, for Once in the Silent, we did a national tour, which was sort of a replica production originally. And then two or three years later, the show was done in London on the West End. And that was a really interesting thing because it was very elemental. They totally ripped apart the theater. They put sand on the stage. There, there was fire. When you walked in the theater, the entire surround of the theater, you felt like you were in the village. That was really interesting. And also to see how that played to British audiences. So that was interesting to see. There's a wonderful production at Paper Mill a couple of years ago, directed by Tommy Kale, which, oh. was, which was really terrific. Really strong cast. And for whatever reason, that didn't Cross, <laughs> cross the river. This production, this is sort of Michael Arden, who, who's our director, it's his, his passion project. He actually <laughs> gave us a demo tape. He sort of proposed it to us on the night that we were doing a concert at Avery Fisher Hall of Ragtime. So Michael was playing younger brother, and, and oddly in, in the cast, Philip Boykin, who plays Tauntaun in this production, he was playing Booker T. Washington, Leia Salongo is mother. So it's so interesting that that one evening uh, of that cast, there were three members that have moved over. So, oh, wow. So, so we had a, a number of conversations, and the notion for this production is, could you make theater if, if everything was taken from you? So in other words, if a storm hit and your instruments and your homes and your community, everything was taken away, would you be able to tell a story and tell your story through just the human voice, the body, and objects that you could find at hand. So that was the initial idea of creating something of beauty as a collective community out of nothing, out of, you know, debris. Yeah, well, even the costumes were, yeah. were made out of some cans. Yeah, they're uh, very, very different. Yeah, yeah. the tree is... Oops, spoiler alert. Oh, I'll cut that out. Uh, but I mean, there was just moments that I was unexpected. So, but one of the reasons I reached out to you was a regional theater production of Ragtime that I was blown away by. But before we get to that, okay. uh, where are you from and how did you get started? Oh yeah, I am from Pittsburgh, PA, proud member of uh, that city. My little community in Pittsburgh is Dormont. 
and we're in the south, south hills of Pittsburgh, just through the tunnel. I got started at a very young age. I started playing piano when I was seven. There wasn't a whole lot of theater that went through my community. So the, really the first professional production I saw was a touring production of Godspell when I was 12, because I went to Catholic school and the nuns said, hey, it's about Jesus, we should see this show. <laughs> so we, so, so we, we saw the Jesus show and I was so taken by it and it, it just blew my mind. And I knew that I had to be part of, of that, you know, and I, it was even before I understood what a writer was or what a composer was, you know, I did, but I knew I wanted to be part of that kind of storytelling. And then shortly thereafter, I saw a production, a local production of Carousel, which really blew me away. So bit by bit, I started studying musical theater and studying scores. I had two great teachers at that time. One was my piano teacher, a man named uh, William Crystal. He was a tricky man. He didn't like kids. So it's hard being a kid, you know, trying to, to study with a person who doesn't really like children. But he, he really made me into the musician I am today. And my high school drama teacher, whose name was Ted White, he forced me to contribute to the musical. So I became the accompanist and I wrote my first musical at age 14. And there was no turning back after that. It was the most fun I had ever had in my entire life. Oh, wow. Yeah. And did you realize that you wanted to be a storyteller through music at that early yeah, age? Yeah, I, I didn't think of it as composing. I thought of it as making things up. Like a nun uh, was doing a production of Peter Pan, and she said, we need music for this scene, and there's no music in the score. Can you just make something up? And I said, oh, sure. And I would just make things up, and I just found that I could do it, you know, and I had never really thought about it. Oddly, I found early on that I could write in different genres because I had such a wide-ranging interest in different kinds of music. So my very first musical when I wrote at age 14, there was one scene that was a gospel scene, had a you know revival meeting, gospel sound. One was rock and roll, one was country western, one was a show tune. And I think that was me trying to find my way into music and to, into different styles. And, you know, obviously it was my music, but I was leaning heavily into a, a style. And, and that's actually something that I wound up doing later in life. And for the first musical, I did it as well. That's wonderful. Yeah. So when creating a score or making th things up, what do you see is the role of the ensemble? My podcast is about, is about the ensemble and being well, the heartbeat. Well, I absolutely love writing for the ensemble. And actually this production of Once on this Island, the ensemble is singing in virtually every single number. Yes, they are. So, so in other words, if it's a song where Erzuli is singing, Lea Salonga, the entire ensemble supports her with these beautiful new vocal treatments by Anne-Marie Malazzo. So the idea is that the entire community supports Lea and then Leia finishes her number, and then she comes back into the ensemble to support the next person who sings their song. So the, the, and, and it's even reflected in the choreography. Camille A. Brown is a, a wonderful young modern dance choreographer whose specialty is African dance. Even in the dance auditions, it's never like, here's the routine, now you three go across while the rest of the room watches you. She would do it with hand claps and stomps, so everybody would have to do drum patterns with their bodies. And then she would say, okay, now you go, now you go. And like one or two would go at a time, but everybody else in the entire room who's auditioning for, for the show had to support who was dancing at the moment. And that's something I thought was quite unique and something that I thought was really reflective of, of our show and the, what we wanted to say about ensemble. Oh, and it definitely came across. I mean, I wanted to get up and, and, and dance in the eye. That's the goal, that's the goal. Yeah, I mean, cause every character yeah. is dancing, the way that the, the shoulders move, yeah. I loved it. So I reached out to you because I saw a regional production of Ragtime at ah. Donkwood Playhouse. And Ragtime, I will just say, is hands down my favorite musical of all Thank time. Thank you. you. You know, I missed that production. I heard it was wonderful. It was, it was great. And I realized uh, in watching that show, the opening of Act One and the closing of Act One, I think, are two of the best, some of the best moments on stage. But they are big ensemble moments. I don't know if you know this story, but Lynn and I actually had to audition to get the gig. No. Yeah. You know, and a lot of my friends said, how dare you? Or how dare they ask you to audition? And the truth is, at that point, we had been on Broadway twice. We had done Once on this Island, and we had done My Favorite Year at Lincoln Center Theater, which was a very traditional kind of Julie Stein, brassy musical comedy, which I thought would be really fun to do. Yeah. But there was nothing that we had done that would indicate that we could do a, a large-scale, sweeping, historical drama, you know. And I, I knew I could, but they didn't. And I said to Lynn, we totally should go for this. The way it worked is we were given a, a treatment by Terrence McNally of his recipe of how he would adapt it for the stage because apparently Dr. O was not thrilled with the film adaptation. Mm. So he wanted more control over who are the writers, what is their take, and, and I felt it's better to know sooner than to work on a show for two years to find out that your concept is 
is not matching everybody else's. So, yes. so Terrence had done this uh, beautiful, simple treatment, 60 pages, which used a lot of Dr.'s original text in it. And then the assignment was, and there were various songwriting teams, so you, could, you had to put blinders on. You couldn't imagine so-and-so doing this moment in the show. It was really, you had to focus on what is your take. And uh, we had to write four songs and demo them, arrange them, record them, mix them, put them on a cassette, because that's back in the day <laughs> when we had cassettes. And then you had to hand them in. And oddly, we had to hand them in on the opening night of Garth Drabinsky's Showboat. That was like, that was the big line that you had to hand it in. So uh, I remember throwing ourselves into it and we counted how many work days that we had together to be able to do this. It was 11 days to write four songs. So, oh my goodness. so there, there's, a, there's always a practical side to what we do as well as an artistic side. The practical side said, I would start two music first and Lynn would do two lyrics first and then we would swap and get in a room and wrestle with the songs that we had. The two music first are the opening of act one and the opening of, or and the ending of uh, act one, which is till we reach that day. And I sort of sketched the music for those two and with till we reach that day, I wrote the hymn part, which is there's a day of hope, a day of peace. And Lynn said, you know, there were all, people were really angry with what just happened. And I said, I know, but this is kind of the kind of hymn that they would sing. And she said, I feel that there needs to be an undercurrent there, you know, that people are outraged with, you know, this crime that has happened. And so I began to think, what if we kept the hymn, but then layered it with this ragtime, angry ragtime of people's outrage, people's thoughts while they're in this church singing, you know, for Sarah, who has just been killed, you know, and then that became really interesting. And that to me is that right there is the example of collaboration. Yes. Because I would have written this beautiful hymn that I would hope would be stirring, but it's the anger and also letting the audience know that this is what is going to come to play in Act Two, the aftermath of this. We knew in order to get this job, because we knew Garth, when we met with him, he, he said, I t intend to present this show on a grand scale as he does. Mm. And so we knew it was going to be multi-stories, it was going to be about America, about America becoming itself, huge idea, about three different groups of people, a large orchestra, a large cast. So I, I said to Lynn, we should go for broke. We, sh we should just get a, a group of our friends, we should get them in a recording studio, we should do full out choral arrangements and just show the breadth of it. So we, we did, we would call our friends and we would say, we're doing a big ensemble number from Ragtime, demoing it on the studio Wednesday at two, can you come? And they'd say, yeah, who am I playing? And we would not know, because we hadn't finished the song, but we knew to keep on schedule, yeah. we would have to record something on that day at two. And so people would come and, you know, there we, we could only use people that could sight read or pick up really quickly. Right. And our demo of Till We Reach That Day is actually more thrilling than I think what was in the show. And I kept analyzing it for years. Like, why is that? And then I had forgotten that in the alto section, we had Billy Porter oh. <laughs> singing at the absolute top of his range, singing the, the, the women's part. And that was the secret weapon. You know, that's the secret ingredient. Yes. So it, it's, we were working very quickly. And then, then, then the other two, uh, one was a song called Gliding, which is a very intimate song for Tata, who's the immigrant. And the other song was an Evelyn Nesbitt's song. Oh, okay. And that plot line got sort of pared back. So when that did, we, we lost that song. That's always hard when I, I worked with Mike Nichols and he talked about ah. kill, killing his babies. I think it's a necessary thing, hard as it is. Yes. Well, I know the first time I saw Ragtime of probably the eight times I saw it was the L.A. company. I hadn't moved to New York oh, yet. Oh, that was fantastic. And I, I think I saw the Gypsy Run. I had no idea what I was walking into. And that opening number... I wept from the emotion of just pure beauty and being inspired as a performer. And then I moved to New York shortly after that and got to see it on Broadway. That number, I think, is one of probably the best numbers, like staging and vocally. How did that come about? Well, you, you, know, you know, an opening number is always the first thing that you write, and it's also the last thing you write. Because mm. I always have to start with the first notes of a score. I have yeah. to start, and, I, and you have to be really, you, you have to coax them out, and you have to make sure that they're the right notes, you know, because you're setting your palette for every thing that follows it and for the larger structures. And not only that song, you know, but that's a theme that was woven all through the score. Same thing as Once in this Island. I just gave my impulse and I wrote a piece of ragtime music. 
and then Lynn responded to that, and then we knew it was going to be about the three different groups. And our our demo, we got waylaid by Harry Houdini, who <laughs> who, who featured really strongly in Terrence's treatment. So we, we thought, oh. well, this I'm not sure if we want to go at length about Houdini, but we wanted to get the job. So we had a big Houdini section, and then once we got the job, we thought, you know. The celebrities need to make appearances. We need to lay out all the characters. It's an, it's an overture of personalities and ideas. But, you know, we can't lean in, into any one of these people at this point. We're setting up our three protagonists. We're setting up the, the three groups of people. We're setting up the world. So we just kept working and working, and we would go further. And then when we would change a song for Evelyn Nesbitt, which we did, uh, the first song we had was called Girl on the Swing. All of a sudden, we had Girl on the Swing music in the opening number, which we, we then had to rip out and put in the new song, which was called Crime of, Crime of the Century. We, we just kept working and working, and it was a, a piece of architecture. And the, and the cool thing that I think really w- was exciting was we were working with Graciela Danielle, oh, yes. who was who, our choreographer of the original Broadway company. And we had worked with her on Once on this Island, which she had directed and choreographed. And I knew that we had to let the audience know that there was going to be some sort of friction later in the show. And, and the, the number starts out as a solo piano, and then it starts building. And I kept thinking, what is the most nervous-making sound you could create? And I thought, it's like when you're in an elevator, and you're stuffed in there with these people. And it's silence. So I, I had these little pockets of silence that were compositionally written in. And I said to Grazia, I said, maybe that's something we could do for the dance where this group comes against this group and they, they're they denying the presence of that group. So we have silence, like really nervous making elevator time. And then the music continues and then there's another pause. She loved that idea. So she said, give me more of that. So we actually stretched the music longer for, for that. But that was pretty close to what was in the demo. But she loved the idea and she actually found a physical reason for the silence and she built the idea of what she called the three tribes and how they Mm. would circle one another without dealing with one another. And you know that by the end of the story, these groups have to deal with one another. Yes. And and she created a very effective way to, to illustrate that through movement. And I think she is the hero of that opening number because she really helped guide us as we were the writing and the rewriting of that number through various readings and workshops. Speaking of opening numbers, mm. the opening number I saw last night. Sorry if we keep going back to once on the side. <laughs> no, it's, 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 it's exciting. You know, I find it hard to sleep these days. I'm so wound up in a good way. And that number, We Dance, is just, it is an ensemble number, even the gods yeah. get introduced, but how is coming up with that number? Well, you know, it's, it was an interesting thing. Again, those first notes, the beginning of the show for We Dance, they were the first notes that I wrote. It's the prayers to the gods, you know, Asaka, grow me a garden, please, Agwe, don't flood my garden, those notes. Again, it was a musical gesture, and Lynn said, oh, I know what that is, they're prayers to the gods. So mm. we, she came up with that notion, and we knew that we wanted to have the whole community singing. And then bit by bit, we introduce who these gods are and, and, and the theme of this class, this other class, both living on one island and you know, sort of set up the themes for the evening. It was a song I was writing at my piano and it, it just is coming out too heady. <laughs> you know, it was like just coming off too heady. And I thought, you know, this should be more free. This should be a, a rhythmic explosion. It, should, it shouldn't be something that you work out like at your piano, like an etude. You know, so I thought, get away from your piano. So I just started walking around the city, New York, and getting the rhythm in my body. And the chorus came up. And once we had the chorus, we danced to the earth, we danced to the water, that section. All of a sudden, the, the entire song clicked into place. And so I, <laughs> I felt like I should not write the rest of the, the score at the piano. I should get ideas in my head rather than working them out at the keyboard. And that's how I continued writing the rest of the show. And I would be walking around town singing to myself. And at one point, there was this elderly man who screamed out. He said, just keep singing. Don't let nobody tell you that you can't. And I didn't know if that meant that I was really like off pitch <laughs> or, or that he thought like, oh, you're on to something or you're excited about something, strange person or whatever that meant. But I just, I just knew I had to write a lot of it away from the piano. So 
I did. Well, whatever you did worked. Yeah, and then you, well, thank you. But, and, but you know, once you have the idea, then you have to run home and you're praying that you don't hit too many red lights on your walk, you know, because you have to jump at the piano and grab, grab the idea while you can. And everything really was built upon that original idea of what the opening number was. So. Oh, well, it, I mean, it's thrilling. I can't wait for people to come see it. Thank you. Thanks. I also got to see Anastasia this season. Ah. Uh, and because of you and your amazing management team, you got me press house seats. So I got to take my mom, and she loved Did it. Did she love it? Okay, oh, she loved, Well, she remembers seeing the movie uh, with yeah. her favorite aunt when she was a little mm. girl. So, I mean, she was thrilled. With a number like Stay, I Pray, I Pray You, yeah. it's so haunting and chilling, and it becomes an ensemble moment, but it starts off as a, as a solo moment. How do you decide there's going to be a build, and, and this is just to stand and sing with the ensemble? Well, you would think the whole concept would start from the composer. Actually, it started from our book writer, Terence McNally. Mm. And he said he'd been reading a lot of Russian literature, listening to Ru- Russian music and Russian plays. And he said, you know, in every Russian art form, he said there's such a love and respect for the motherland, for the mother Russia, where you come from, for your roots within that country. He said, this scene in a train station, this is going to be a moment where everybody in that station is going to be leaving, and they, including our principals, and they may never be able to return. And it's their last moment of reckoning, of saying goodbye to the place that nourished them and the place that frustrated them, but the place that gave them their identity. And rather than having one of the principals start it, we thought it would be a really interesting idea if it was just an anonymous man in the crowd. Mm. And that's that's what we did. We wanted to see if if you if he could sing sort of like from nothing. That this one voice sings, then two others join him, and then and it's the only time in the entire show where there is no support from the orchestra because I wanted to somehow show the humanity. I said to Terence and Lynn, I said, what if we cut the orchestra and what if it's a solo man with no support, then the chorus, and, and I thought, oh, they could hum it, because I'd always heard of this mm. phrase, the humming chorus. You yeah. know, there are various operas. I had never in anything done a humming chorus. And I thought, oh, what if they hum these vocal parts and then they go into Oz and then they give voice to their thoughts and then we blend in the individual thoughts of our three principles. And it, it was a moment that the cast loved to sing. And as we went further with our country, we, we started development of this stage version in 2011. So since then, if you look at the arc of what immigration yeah. reform in this country is, and people being sent back, people not being permitted to come into this country that was a country that was based on immigration. Friends of mine that I am trying to come, trying to invite to come to, to see the show, we cannot get them across the borders. You know, so there's a lot going on since, since then. And it really resonated in a totally different way for the cast than it did saying this is just about Russia and everybody has their own personal story that they bring to yes. that. It's the, it's the favorite number in the show for the cast to sing. And I thought for sure over the six years that it took to develop the show, I thought for sure it was going to get cut because it's one of the few moments in the show that's not about plot. Mm. It does not push the story forward. It's all about the heart, and it's all about the soul of these people, and we made it. We made oh. Thank God made that cut, yeah. It's a haunting, thrilling moment. Because you know how this goes. Like, everybody says, can the show be 10 minutes quicker? You know, can, can the running time of Act 1 be, like, you, know, you come in at, at this time? And it's just a moment of beauty, and I really think that to have lost it, we, yeah, we would have been faster, but I don't think the show would have been better. So yeah, no, I, I'm happy with it. I agree, yeah. but oftentimes there are those moments that are about plot, and oftentimes yeah. the ensemble is out there giving a, a bunch of information, and it's a necessary way to get all that out there. In Anastasia, I think it's a rumor in St. Pete's is an example yeah. of numbers like that. So how does that come about? Where you're like, okay, I have to get. 27 pages of information in three-page songs. Well, well, that was one of the songs that was from the movie. And I should also say for Anastasia, we had to audition for that as well. Wow. We, we, we had developed some things at Disney, and we knew one of the executives from Disney who had since gone to Fox. And there was going to be this green light project. And it was very hush-hush. They were calling it the music box at the time. Mm. And we were told that we were on the short list for this project. And so we had to write two songs on spec. So... <laughs> For that, we wrote uh, Once Upon a December, which I thought was crucial to unlocking the mystery, and it seemed seemed like a really important song. And we did a version of Rumor in St. Petersburg, which then morphed 
over the course of you know many drafts as you're doing as you're doing a movie because you know things shift and they are not always of your design the way mm. they shift so there was actually another antagonist character and then it was Rasputin rising from the dead for who knows what reason but that's what was decided one morning over coffee and so all of a sudden the entire fate of what what your project and Antone you know goes takes a, a, a different angle because you know you're a, you're a hired gun in Hollywood you don't yes. you don't control all the artistic choices are, you, you know, you, you can give your artistic expression, but at the end of the day, it's a producer and director-driven medium. So when we were going back to Anastasia, we were able to make it more historically accurate, deepen the themes, and also expand a lot of the numbers. But Rumor in St. Petersburg was a number that people loved from the film, so we had to totally re-adapt it for, for our new tone and there's new character information. Uh, you get to meet Vlad, who's John Bolton's character in it, and how mm. he interfaces in his backstory with Dimitri. And you get to meet the new character, Gleb, and Anya is presented there. And there's, there was a, it was very ambitious to take something that was a known tune and then totally restructure it with new information and totally change all the arrangements. So there's a sense of tension, a sense of danger. So it's not just happy-go-lucky Russian villagers. Right. But we knew at the core it was always going to be this group of people. You know? Yeah, because those merry villager numbers are... Yeah, you can't do a merry villager, you know. And they're in every show almost. I, they are, they are, but you have to, you have to be like really careful. And, and in this, you know, it was about... The, the after effects of the revolution. So you're presenting this new Russia and how do the people feel about the new order. The funniest thing is, you know, we, our cast for Anastasia is, I think, believe, I believe it's 22 on stage. So we present this opulent scene of the czarist Russia, imperial Russia. So we have the entire cast, all of them, and they're out on the stage and they're wearing jewels and yes. crowns and, and, and furs. And it's this beautiful moment uh, created largely by Linda Cho, our costume designer, and Aaron Ryan, who did the sumptuous backgrounds within Alexander Dodge's set. And so you create this and then in one dance number, we knew we had to do some sort of version of what the Russian Revolution was in dance. <laughs> so that was, that's <laughs> what we were struggling to do and brought on my friend David Chase to help with the arrangements. Mm. And so while we were doing that, nobody realized that in order to get into the next scene, which is Rumor in St. Petersburg, it's those same people who have to come out wearing rags. Yes. And then we had to figure out how long is that going to take and, and Darko said, well, you know, we can, we can just have interesting projections. And I said, I don't think that's going to hold water. It can't because we're presenting a human element and then to re remove the human element. And we wound up figuring out it's going to be 35 to 45 seconds. And you can't lose, you know, humanity for that long. No. The audience will check out. And I said to Darko, I said, is everybody on behind in the wings stripping and like putting on rags? Is everyone doing that? He said, well, Mary Beth Peel is it, the Dowager Empress. So we thought, what a lucky break. So after uh, Anastasia vanishes, then you cut to a visual in Paris where Mary Beth is reading a letter that is the news that her family yes. has, been, has been killed. And Terrence gave her one line that was all of them, all of them. And you understand what it's about. And it's a wonderful moment for that actress who really started that sequence you know, yes. with, with the young Anastasia and then it ends with her hearing the news and that was totally about desperation and costume changes. So many things that are wonderful and worthy and exciting ideas are really brought about through desperation. That's oh, absolutely true. That is fascinating. So if you have a problem you, you, you can either cave or your show is going to get better. You yes. know, if you can re wrestle with it and think creatively. A lot of criticism that people say about the new world of theater is that you walk out not humming a song. I do not think that that's ever the case with your musicals. You walk out singing more than one song. I mean, Journey to the Past, I've been singing new music from Ragtime. When you think of a melody, does it just come to you? I try not to analyze where ideas come from because mm. I'm afraid if you think, where does water come from? And you start thinking of pipes, and then yes. you start thinking of a, of a reservoir, but how does it get in that reservoir? And you start analyzing something that in a certain way you shouldn't be analyzing. You, I think, and I don't mean this in a religious way necessarily, but I think you have to have great faith being a writer. You know, because you are looking at nothing. You're looking at a blank page. You're trying to pull a rabbit out of thin air. I think you have to have great faith knowing that there's more where that came from. And I truly believe if you absolutely believe that, then actually there is, you know. And I used to, as a young writer in college, I would get to measure 
35. And I would tend to freeze up because I knew if I made a choice A, that the piece would become that kind of a piece, mm. it would go there. And if I made choice B, it would become a totally different kind of a piece. And rather than making a choice, I would stop, you know, as opposed to make a choice and you'll find out soon enough if it was right or if it was right for you or if it was right for the show. But you can't not make a choice because writing and life are a series of big and little choices, you know, like we're all the, we're, we're the sum of our choices. Yes. I really think. Lynn Ahrens, whenever I started working with Lynn in 83 now, she was like an improv gal and she would just throw things at the wall to see what would stick. You know, she would think of ideas on her feet. I was like coming from the conservatory and I would, was wearing black at the time and I had a beard and I was very serious and I would like sequester myself in solitary like some monk, you know, and try to like think profound thoughts. <laughs> and, and and she would love to work in the room. She would just say, make up something. And I had never made up something in front of an, another human being. And that's like saying, expose yourself to the world. And it might not be a good idea, you know, and it might be a horrible idea, but it might lead to a good idea. So I think her encouraging of me to loosen up my way of working, I think it was a really necessary and important thing at that period of my life. So over time, we, we worked together, and I came more to her side, she came more to my side. You know, we both had written, Lynn was a, a composer. She had had a whole career in commercial music. So she knew a melody, she knew she has great ears. I had written lyrics, I came writing book m music and lyrics to New York because there was nobody else to collaborate with in the Midwest. And I thought collaboration could be a good idea and it allows you to, to go to a point that you necessarily wouldn't on your own. And how did you guys find each other? In, in the BMI workshop, which I think oh, yes. a lot of your listeners may know is like sort of a mixer for lonely composers and lyricists and they all go there. And the truth of the matter is, I shouldn't say this, but it's true. I think that there are many wonderful and gifted composers in the world. I think there are very few really top-notch lyricists. I just believe that's the case, you know? Mm. And I, my own lyrics, I enjoyed writing them, but I, they would tend to be verbose, and I would tend to have a hard time crystallizing an idea down to a very few syllables. And Lynn's expert at that. She's poetic, but her lyrics, if you read them, seem simple but when you put them on the music, they really soar. I think she has enough air in her lyrics to allow music to exist. That, that said, she's somebody who loves music first. You know, she, it, and it doesn't have to be a full tune or a full song. It can just be, well, we, we talk forever about the situation, about the character, about the moment, and we just talk and talk and talk and talk until we fully understand what the emotional state is, what the arc of the moment is, what the character is feeling emotionally. And then usually some bit of music bubbles to the surface, which gives us a tone or a feeling or, or a gateway into what mm. the song might be. You know, So she likes that, but then some of our, I think, strongest songs have been written the exact opposite way, like Back to Before, which oh. is seriously the only song that Lynn has never tweaked a lyric. Every other song from every other show or everything we've ever done, she's always like busy tweaking, you know, until the last possible minute when you freeze the show. Yes. But Back to Before, she just wrote it. She knew she needed to write that song for a long time, and she said, I'm just going to write that lyric, write that moment when I'm when I know enough about mother and what she's feeling. And Terrence wrote this beautiful line that mother says to father, we can never go back to before. And Lynn thought, oh, that's it. That's the title, that's the song. And she wrote this complete lyric and then faxed it to me. That's back in the days of faxes. Wow. Remember those as a yes. little studio apartment. I'm hearing this as the faxes coming through. And it was filled with really long sentences and I couldn't even feel what the meter was. So again, I went away from my piano, and luckily we had a roof that we could hang out on in my building. So uh, I started walking in circles around on the roof, and then the melody and the rhythm of it came to me through my walking around a roof. And I thought, oh, there it is. And so then you're hitting down to four, you're hitting the elevator button, and you're praying to God that nobody gets on, <laughs> on seven or five or six, to derail your idea, because yeah. you, you have to run to the piano, and the song just poured out, and, and I recorded it, and notated it out, and, and that was the song. Oh, and it's... And no rewrites. It was like, that was, that was it. And that's one of my favorite songs. When I got to work with Marin, I was like, you're the one who sang that song! She, well, she, Marin's extraordinary. I, I'm so excited because tonight, both Marin and Audra McDonald are, are being uh, inducted into the Theater Hall of Fame. <gasps> Oh, yeah. wow. So if that's not going to be a cause for celebration, I cannot wait to be there to celebrate them both because they're extraordinary. And it was from this amazing period of time where I met them both. 
and they both became muses yes. to, to the piece, to me in general, and they brought out other things in me that I hadn't done before. Never underestimate the muse. Fascinating. Yeah. So with your extreme success, you've also had some disappointments. I mean, with... In, Flops. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Rocky and Susicle and Des the Rose. These are beautiful scores that go underappreciated. I mean, that's heartbreaking. How do you get through that? I honestly think it's like good parenting. You know, what you have to do is you, you raise the kid, you do your best, you hope they have a life, you put them out into the world, and you know, and you see what happens. You know, Dessa Rose, it was an important show for Lynn. She had been badgering me for more than a decade to write Dessa Rose, and I just couldn't see it as a piece. And, and the subject matter, frankly, was very challenging, as was the whole idea, and it was very sprawling, and I couldn't see how you could focus it in. I said, clearly this is something, you can see clearly how this would be adapted for the stage. I can't. I don't know what else to say, but maybe you should take some time and write it as if you were writing like a, a folk opera libretto and just try to put down a big chunk even of an act that I can respond to so I can see how you're thinking of this. It was really evocative and I just thought about it for a long time and that was one of the few pieces where I wrote 50 minutes of act one, just music based on what she had said to me. It, it, was, a, it was a really interesting project, really worth doing. We had a really good run at Lincoln Center, but you know, we were part of the subscription series and you know, that means you're gonna have your three months and it was absolutely worth doing. It's, it's been revived here and there. I heard a lot about a London production. I just couldn't at the time get over to see it. Mm. And it was Cynthia Arrivo as Dessa Rose. Oh wow! Yeah, so I've seen photos, but I, I can't I can't find a bootleg, you know. So, <laughs> but uh, that's when I wish I had seen Rocky was a huge hit in Europe. It's played multiple cities. It just closed in Czechoslovakia. It's a very interesting piece. I, I was scared by it at first because I Tom Bean, God bless him, you know the dear. Mm. Tom Meehan had brought the piece to us and I just thought it seemed like a really goofy idea. <laughs> and I said, Lynn, um, I gotta tell you, I got off the phone with Tom. Are you sitting down? Here's his idea. It's Rocky. And, and she said, oh, I hate boxing. And then we realized it really wasn't about boxing. It was this love story between these two damaged people. And it reminded me of something that would be done on like Playhouse 90 you know, one of these really gritty mm. dramas and the idea that there could be fight choreography and you could get into these people's heads. And also it was very blue collar kind of a show. And that's my, that's my background. And I really felt in writing that I was writing something for my neighborhood. Oh. And as I was writing the songs, I would imagine my neighborhood watching the show. And they would speak up and it would be like Phyllis Gannon from up the street would say, I don't get that part. That's, that's too fancy or whatever. And I was sort of like finding it like by imagining my imaginary audience of my neighborhood watching the show. We had a spectacular time in Germany. We, we opened up in Hamburg in the German language. Oh, and, really? Which was wild. And Stallone came over and we, we were over there for three months working on the show with Alex Timbers, our director, Tom Meehan, Lynn, Kelly Devine, who was our choreographer, Stephen Hoggett, who did all the fight choreography. This amazing international cast. It was not, not only one of the great theater experiences of my life, it was one of the, the great personal experiences. I had not been away from my then partner, now husband, Trevor, for more than two weeks in my life. And all of a sudden, I was gonna be there for three weeks. So that freaked me out more than like than figuring out the fight scene, <laughs> frankly. But uh, he came over for six weeks and it was such an adventure for all of us. Mm. Tom, Tom Meehan's wife, Carolyn, came over. Neil Costa, who's Lynn's husband, came over for a bit. Like, And it was just this amazing, adventure for all of us. And then we came to Broadway and for various reasons things changed and, and it didn't work. It, it was overproduced, frankly. We couldn't run. We were 85% capacity on bad weeks and we just couldn't, we couldn't break even, which I thought was kind of extraordinary. But yeah. Yeah, but that's, you know, that's what happens. It was, that was disappointing, you know, because I know there, there's a good show there. Now there's interest in various productions in the UK and elsewhere, and we're going to explore those ideas. So that's, that's a show that I think will be seen, and, and, and I'm, I look forward to seeing different takes on the shows. That's yes. what's so great about the theater, you know, because you can, I, I saw my first production of Ragtime a year ago in London, and it was done with actor-musicians. I had never seen that done with any of my shows before. Oh, wow. And it was really successful, really exciting, and it was a joy to experience that. And then within the same year, we saw Ragtime at the Ford's, Ford Theater in Washington, D.C. I saw an immersive uh, storefront production of it in uh, Chicago, 
And I know there's the uh, Agonquit, Maine, and uh, it's uh, playing up in Seattle now. It's going to go down to Oslo State Theater in Florida. Oh, yes. And, and there are all these really interesting, very, very different takes uh, on the show. One, one of the really interesting takes is it was done in a woman's house of detention with six actors and a piano and in Minneapolis. And, and, and it got on the top... 10 list. I think, in fact, it was actually the top, you know, most incredible theatrical event of that particular year. You know, we couldn't get to it, but we... Was it all women? No, 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 all all mixed. And just the idea of justice. Yeah. And justice uh, being thwarted, done in a house of detention, and you know, where where women are incarcerated. Yeah. And and that, that was like, Amazing. So we talked to the director about that, and it, there are many different ways you can do it. Uh, there was a concert about a year ago in Ellis Island, you know, yes, in the hall. So there's there's talk about a potential production there. I think it's great. I don't I don't that that's the thing. It's the the shows don't end. You know, some are done a lot. Some are done less frequently. Some are more difficult to produce because the of the casting limitations. Yeah. You know? Or requirements, I should say, but it's but it's fascinating. It's this ongoing dialogue between performers, directors, designers, and writers. There's no such thing as final cut in theater, and that's that's what makes it exciting to me. And that's what makes me want to write for this medium. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too because when a show's done on Broadway, the director and choreographer and everyone's so involved. But when it gets a future life and goes somewhere else, yeah, it's really just the composer and lyricist who their legacy goes on. Well, yeah, and, and there are certain productions where the director or music director, to their great credit, they reach out and because they maybe want to change things or they want to have it focused in a different way. And so we have a dialogue with, with these people, and it's, and it's interesting because, first of all, I think really the only thing we have going for us here in the theater is that we own our copyrights. We don't own them in, in film. And so that's, oh. that's the only thing we have because of the Dramatist Guild of America, which means you cannot change... A word, you cannot change a scene, you cannot rearrange scenes, you cannot do a song that's a ragtime song to a disco beat. There, you know, there, there are many things you, you know, without sole permission of, yeah. of the authors. So that that actually creates a dialogue, you know, between the original author and the and the director. I, I think that that's good because that can lead to new, fresh ideas with respect to the original. So I have a question about a show I know nothing about called Love Repeating. I was oh, uh, loving repeating. Loving repeating. Yes, yeah, so it has two ings in both of those. Yes. Words. And I was just researching you, and that popped up, and I had no idea. It's a lesbian love story? Well, it's all, it was an idea that was brought to me by Frank Galati, who is obsessed with Gertrude Stein. He had done, I believe, three or four previous productions that dealt with her, her life, her works, her relationships with uh, Picasso was one of them. He felt that she was misunderstood by the general public. He's, mm. he, he felt that... Her work was interpreted as heady and impenetrable. And he said, in fact, she was a really, really fun person, very playful, very out of the box, clearly. And he said, I want to put that across. I, I, and he said, I, and at the time he was teaching at Northwestern University. He was a professor there in the dramatic studies program. And he said, I'd like to do something about her way of seeing what it is she does and also somehow get her life with Alice B. Toklas and how that filtered into what it was that she, she does. Uh, so in other words, writing a perfect couplet or creating the perfect salad are equal and valid, you know, both of them. And I thought that was an interesting idea and I really didn't know anything about Gertrude Stein other than, you know, the, the couple of famous poems that I knew. He said to, to really up the playfulness, I want it to be all young people. Like nobody can be in the show if they're over 20. So he oh. wanted to use students from Northwestern and then there would be one adult actress, older actress, uh, who played Gertrude towards the end of her life. And he found a speech where Gertrude was lecturing the students when she was 64 years old. And looking back at her life, and all of a sudden she sees her young self and then her romance. And basically, it's she sees her entire life in philosophy within 75 minutes. And a very long life is a very quick flash. And it was an exciting thing. It took, it really scared me. I had no idea what I was gonna do. And also, it was one of the rare examples where I didn't work with Lynn. I was working with Gertrude Stein. And if I needed her to adjust a line or give me a pickup note, couldn't do it, <laughs> you know? So I, it, was, it was very, very challenging, but it was very playful, and it was a chance just to be with Frank Galati again. Yes. And we had such a, an amazing time, you know, working previously. It, it, it was great. So we did it at Northwestern. The show was then 
done in Chicago by the Museum of Contemporary Art and the About Face Theater, which is their gay and lesbian theater there. It was wild to, to be doing a show about the creation of art in an art museum and a play that's about gay lives that was sponsored and supported by a gay theater. And it was a total Chicago happening. And so we did the, the original cast recording in Chicago with that original Chicago cast. And they had told me that it was the first Chicago cast recording in 20 years. So, you know, because we were trying to figure out all the yes. equity stuff and, you know, to make it happen. That's a show that's, that pops up here and there. It had been re revived in Chicago. There had been a, a production in Melbourne, Australia that looked amazingly sexy and, like, really interesting. And I had heard from people that had seen that. And this one guy, he said it was his favorite show that he'd seen in Melbourne in five years. So it pops its nose up. It's, it sort of scares people because it doesn't have linear narrative the mm. way we know it, but there's logic to it. Actually, this past fall, NYU, the Steinhardt School, their uh, vocal performance department, they did three nights of loving repeating uh, at the Provincetown Playhouse in the village. Oh. And so it was delightful, again, with students, with very, very young people doing this and the, the very young audience too. And they were like totally into it. So I'd, I'd like to see it, you know, settle down more. Yeah, you know, but it, it's definitely one of the more elusive pieces. But again, it was a pleasure to, to create. Well, now with Once on this Island, how much is changing being reimagined for this without giving any spoilers? For, 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 for Once on this Island? Yes. Well, we're not really changing the words, the lyrics, or the tunes. But what really, a lot of it is the how-to, because it was always inferred in the original production that it was about the storytelling. And that's mm. something that we experimented with. So now that idea, we're taking it further. So they're like, it, it points uh, accompanying on found instruments, you know, they're doing a lot of the, the orchestrational work. What we did like back in the day where we would hit a, a finger on a, on a synthesizer and create a keyboard pad. We're doing a lot of that with vocals now. Okay. So there's something that we're, so it actually heightens the humanity. Also in, in the round, it's, it's, it's a trickier thing because, you know, somebody always has the actors back to them, you know, so, so yes. we're, so we're working with spatial stuff. We, we really found that we couldn't see what we had or, or mold it until we got in that space. Because you can't, you can't really do it on a page of you know, music and you can't really get the experience in a rehearsal room. So we sort of had to wait till we got in the space. So we're actually using our rehearsal time, I think, well, you know, trying different things. You know, rather than just polishing something. So that, that's sort of what we're doing. Actually, after this interview, I am running over there because we have a rehearsal today. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's good. So one of the things that I found interesting is I think the casting of Alex and Leia is, is wonderful. Mm -hmm. The only time I've ever seen Once on this Island was in a children's theater production where it was all white kids. But I got the storyline, and so it was so nice to see it done, obviously, professionally. But I think there's a lot of people are like, why didn't these certain roles go to real people of color? How conscious of a choice was it to think outside of the box and outside of certain people of color for Once on this Island? Well, in terms of casting, we had Craig Burns at Bernie Telsey Casting, and he collaborated with us. And Michael Arden, from the beginning, wanted to cast a much larger net for the characters of the gods because he had actually done some additional research and in certain tellings of who Papa Gay, who's the demon of death, who he might be, sometimes he would appear as male, sometimes he would appear as female. So Michael began to think that perhaps the gods are above sexuality, they're above gender, they're, they're above culture and race. And so with that in mind, we started keeping a very open minds about who we might find to be these these four gods and we we found f the four perfect people i think you know in the casting of the gods in leia salonga as erzuli quentin er earl darrington as agwe merle dandridge as papa gay and alex newell as asaka the mother of the earth and they were the most vibrant people and they really were into the idea of changing things around. So, example, Papa Gay as a male role and has, was written as such, but then we had a female in this production. We have a female, Mer Merle Dandridge, and Alex Newell doing what was originally a female role. So, you know, just musically trying to figure it out character-wise. character, character -wise. And it took a long time to get those four people. You know, but it really opened up the casting, and I think it's also in in this casting we're trying to say this is about inclusion. So that's what that's what we were thinking as we went further into the casting of it. Well, it definitely worked. 
So you have a well-deserved award for a Tony Award for Ragtime. Mm. Do awards get overwhelming? Is it something you even think about, or do you just kind of get over that? I, I try not to think about it because I think, oddly, it's... It's good for the show, certainly. It's this alternate universe that really doesn't have anything to do with why you do something, why you continue to do something, or what your personal journey was on a piece. You know, and some, I, I just see it as this alt alternate universe that sort of hijacks your life for a month to six weeks. You yes. know, that's sort of what it is. You know, it's nice when you get awards, certainly. It's nice when you receive recognition, absolutely. But I, I always think the, the greatest reward is recognition from my peers, you know, the, the, my fellow writers and people that are doing what I'm doing daily. And they understand, you know, what it's about and they understand the daily challenges and trials as, as well it's both exciting and maddening awards you know yes i do yeah uh, of your long and incredible career do you have a moment that sticks out as one of your favorite moments mm, there's so many so many wonderful moments i remember when we first did once on this island at playwrights horizons off broadway that opening night party and it was right at playwrights really tiny and that was that was a real that was a real moment because it was such a celebration for the show and and, and it had been very very well received so it, that was that was great and also i had just well i was at the end of my 20s and i had thought you know i, I want to have a broadway show by the time i'm 25 and then 25 <laughs> came and went and and that did not happen but it was i was so proud of that show and i thought it would end at playwrights i thought well this is a great moment in time and i'm just going to really enjoy this evening and the fact that it wound up transferring to Broadway was you know a surprise to me I, I was on Broadway by the time I was 30 so. well it's incredible and well, right now we're in the the lobby of Circle and Square yeah and you have to go uh, give notes to your cast so I'm gonna end this and thank you so much if you could pick a song from either your career or just someone that inspires you could be one of your own or anything how what song would you want to represent you and end this well I remember once a friend told me that I should have a pad and paper and a pencil, you know, next to my bed, you know, to, to ca capture dream moments. So I thought, all right. So I, I did that for a while. And in this one dream, I was writing this piece of music and it was the most beautiful piece of music that I had ever heard in my life. I couldn't believe it. It was this amazing dream. And so I sketched down the, the notes, you know, as quickly as I could, went back to s sleep and I couldn't wait to wake up and run to the piano and play that piece of music. And I did, and it was Summertime by George Gershwin. <laughs> but in my dream, I had written it. You know? <laughs> so it was a wonderful dream, but unfortunately I had to wake up. Usually the piece of music I enjoy the most is what I'm wrestling with, you know? And even the, even the difficult births, I, I find exciting, you know? And, and so it's really what I'm working on at, in the moment is always the most exciting to me because you're trying to, you know, pull that old rabbit out of thin air. And that's, that's a thrilling thing. Uh, well, thank you so much. Thank you for writing some of my favorite music. And go uh, compliment your actors because they were wonderful last night. And I will as, let them know. <laughs> and as are, as are you. So thank yeah, you very Thank you. Much. Thanks, Brad. Baby